0: Do you go by Eric Freed? Never. Or never? It's Eric Corey Freed? Here's
1: why. Okay. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was in elementary school, <laughs> there was a, a, a buddy of mine in class who was named Eric Reed. Ah. <laughs> and our teacher, we would mess with the teacher all the time. And so she started using our middle names. And um, he was Eric Scott Reed. By the way, he's a famous pianist, if you're into jazz. But we, <laughs> we grew up together, and we were always using our middle names. And so it just kind of stuck, and then every city I've le- ever lived in, there's always been I don't know five or ten Eric Freed's in the phone book, and that always bothered me. So you could it would mean that you were an individual then. Yes, it's yeah. I, I you know what I it, found what I found is that also that something about the number of consonants helps people remember me. Yes, it, it's a, it's very memorable. It it has a nice ring to it. Eric yeah.
0: Corey Freed.
1: It's got a it's yeah. got a, like a flow yeah. to it. <laughs> and so and you know my friends tease me about it all the time, but. But it's, it's it's part of making people remember me, and you know that's uh, isn't that what we all want?
0: Yes, <laughs> to be and remembered. If we can't do it here, we want a stone <laughs> on the ground or something yeah, like exactly. that. Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful changemakers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st century imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant, helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st Century Imperative? In this podcast, I have the pleasure and fun of interviewing Eric Curry Freed. Eric is one of America's best known advocates for living architecture, and is a passionate advocate for architecture that doesn't just reduce environmental harm, but actually improves the environment it's part of. Before meeting Eric, I'd seen him present at a couple of conferences, and of course seen his two TEDx talks. But it wasn't until we were both presenting at the International Living Futures Institute Conference in Portland this past April, that I had a chance to get to know him the first thing that strikes you about Eric when you meet him is the mischievous twinkle in his eye. And if you've ever seen him present, you know he is as much a stand-up comedian as a green building thought leader. In terms of his expertise in addressing the challenges of the 21st century imperative, his resume clearly paints a picture of someone who has spent their career dealing with its challenges in both his architectural practice and as an advocate of living buildings. Eric is an award-winning architect, author, and global speaker. His current role at morrison Hirschfield is sustainability disruptor, a role that has him identifying solutions to problems most teams didn't even know were holding them back. Before that, he was the founding principal of Organic Architect, a visionary design firm in biophilic and regenerative design. In addition to his architectural practice, Eric was vice president of the International Living Future Institute and Chief Community Officer of Eco Districts, both nonprofits pushing innovative new paradigms for deep green buildings and communities. Eric is the author of 11 books, including Green Building and Remodeling for Dummies. In 2012, he was named one of the 25 best green architecture firms in the U.S. and one of the top 10 most influential green architects. And he also holds the prestigious Lead Fellow Award from the U.S. Green Building Council. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So, Eric, great to have you as a guest on 21st Century Imperative Podcast. One of the things that struck me when I first saw your TED Talks was how effectively you use humour to get your audience to think about the hugely difficult environmental challenges we face. So my favorite bit, I think, was when you proposed renaming climate change Climidia, because no one likes that. Um, have you always
1: been a comedian? Were you the class clown as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I was in a class with a bunch of clowny people. And I don't think I stood out any more than any of them. I think what happened was when, I, when we all discovered uh, girls, I think that's when, that's when humor started. So maybe you know, maybe that was ninth grade or something like that. When, you know, let's see, I'm I'm not I'm not a baseball player, I'm not a football player, but I can think I can think quickly on my feet and make a girl laugh. That's right. and <laughs> that's the a lot
0: of comedians started. Yeah, maybe she'll yeah. just
1: start. She'll laugh enough that that she'll not realize those other things <laughs> and, and go out with me. Uh, Did it work? work? Was it was worked with my wife. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it worked, and then and then I started hanging out with a lot of comedians. That was that was that was the problem, because comedians are weird. They're weird people,
0: and they have and, and when you read their bios, they have tragic lives. You don't seem to have had a tragic
1: life, part of comedians. <laughs> they don't <laughs> know not they. that your bio says <laughs> they don't have tragic lives as much as they're as as much as they're they're trying to live in the present moment. And and so what happens is we we get around each other and we just start teasing each other, and so that's that was really part of it was that um, you know my friends and I and this is now years later when we were in San Francisco we, we'd we put on a monthly party in San Francisco and it, it essentially became a roast where we tease each other and just tear each other apart <laughs> and there's no decency in any of it but but I you know I had I felt like I had this I had this these two parts of my personality I had the serious professor of architecture who was giving you a lecture on sustainable design and sustainable design is dire and it's serious and we must take these things seriously. And then I had the guy that was roasting his friends in a, you know, in a nightclub. Um, And I didn't like having those two parts of my personality separated. And I could see it in the audience faces. I'd I'd give a normal talk and they'd be bored and they'd be, you know, checking their phone or, you know, not paying attention. And so one day I don't remember what happened, but one day I was tired and and I just started ad-libbing, just improvising instead of f- sticking to the slides. I'm like, you guys aren't even listening to this anyway. Listen, here's the problem. <laughs> and, and I just saw the reaction. I saw them perk up. I saw their body language. I mean, they're all facing you yeah. so you can see it. And so my advice to anybody, if you, if you want to get into public speaking, the best thing you can do is just read the room. Just look at the audience. And if you're droning on about something that you think is so important and they're not paying attention, right. you're failing.
0: Humor is key.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, it was, it was really a very architectural idea of what am I here to do? I'm here to I'm here to impart a message, and if they're not listening, let me change let me change how I deliver that message.
0: Because on uh, both the TED talks I've seen you give, plus in your presentations, humor is a key part of how you connect to people, but also give them sort of the narrative transport to carry the ideas away. Like, who's <laughs> going to forget chlamydia? I was telling someone yeah, that nobody today. Yeah, like, nobody wants to catch that. Nobody wants to catch that, right? And to connect that to climate change is wonderful. But a little more seriously, uh, tell us a little bit more about your passion for solving environmental problems and, and, and through what you're doing now as biological living architecture. Where'd that passion come from?
1: How'd, how'd you get there? I... Um... That's a good question. I, I think I'm a very unlikely person to end up being green. And I don't know, when you went to architecture school, I don't know if this was the case, but when I went to architecture school in Philadelphia, we all had nicknames for each other. Nobody, we never called anybody by their real name. So we all had nicknames. And so there was deconstructivist boy, and there was postmodern guy. And, <laughs> what what right? were you? I was nature boy. Ah, and what? Why? Because all my buildings had like green, growy things, and they were they were all oriented to the sun, and <laughs> and so that was my that was my nickname in college. And any of my college friends will tell you that. But it's I'm not a nature guy. I hate camping. I hate being outdoors. I like architecture. <laughs> I like <laughs> I like being in buildings. Oddly enough, um, for me, sustainability was not. It was not a feel-good, kumbaya, get-back-to-the-earth thing. For me, it is illogical to destroy habitat. It is illogical to use a resource until it's depleted. It is illogical to pollute the waterways and the airways that, that we survive on. It just doesn't make any sense. And so I came from, from sustainability-wise, I came from a, that perspective. And then in, in addition to that, my early mentors were old Frank Lloyd Wright students. So old Taliesin apprentices, right. essentially.
0: And and their background is in their, the frankly, right, organic architecture.
1: Right. So I, you know, starting at age eight. Which isn't really organic per se, but that, it, no.
0: it, it, it was arts and crafts, but tended to use wood and, and connect with nature through views and so forth.
1: Yeah. I, I think if anything, organic better describes his process yeah. than anything else. Uh, that was my early inspiration was this idea of organic architecture and connecting to something bigger than yourself and connecting to nature and... And living in harmony with nature in a in a much more logical way, and um, it took me. You know, it's funny. It took me basically uh, forty five years to get to this point of being able to explain this this clearly. But when I was in school, it was torture. I was I was frustrated and depressed and and feeling very, um, you know, nobody. Like you was didn't ta- fit in. No, I didn't yeah. fit in at all. Nobody yeah. was talking about this. Yeah. My professors were telling me. Of you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's gone. You know, this it was the it was the eighties. So at that point, nobody Most wanted modernism was in. Yeah, nobody yeah. wanted to hear about Frank Lloyd yeah. Wright. So I felt very very much the outcast, and um, and and really suffering with it. And it was it was at a it was at a low that I was in the I was in the library of the architecture building, and there was no internet. <laughs> there was no internet back then. So I was in the library, which we used to have, and I'm flipping through a. A a magazine, and I saw the work of an architect named Bart Prince, and immediately it, it was like, "Whoa! If Frank Lloyd Wright had stayed another fifty years living, this is the kind of stuff he he might be doing." That was my first thought, and sure enough, Bart Prince worked for Bruce Goff, who worked for right, Frank Lloyd Wright. Right. So I went to the uh, phone book section of the library. Remember those? And I oh, pulled, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I pulled out the I pulled out the Albuquerque phone book. <laughs> And I flip through, and there's his name and his address, and I write it down, because again, there's no internet, and I wrote him a letter. And in the letter, the letter was, was not about, oh, God, I love your work. It was, I'm miserable. My professors don't friggin' understand me. The students think I'm nuts. I'm putting green growies on the building and orienting the sun. It all seems very logical to me, but they're telling me I'm crazy, and I've been, I've been doing this since I was eight years old. Help. It was, it was a cry for help. And what happened? Uh, the most miraculous thing. He wrote me back. And, uh, he had basically, he had been through something similar in his life. He had felt the same way, uh, keep fighting, keep going. You're on the right path. And then he included in it a, um, newsletter from a group of all the old Frank Lloyd Wright and Bruce Goff apprentices. They're, they're all part of a club. And so he included a newsletter in it and he's like, maybe, maybe you want to join this group. And so overnight I went from feeling utterly and completely alone. Like I was the weirdo because I part die. of a tribe. So suddenly there's this whole tribe of people that were very willing to mentor me and had amazing stories about them feeling the same way. No doubt. Yeah. And then yeah. probably, you know, and having sat at the hem of the skirt of the, one of the greatest architects of all time, you know, so it was, it was, a, it was very empowering and came at the perfect time because otherwise I probably would have <laughs> become a sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who most inspires you now? Well, you do, Craig. Oh, well, thank
0: you very much. Now, other, other than myself, now, now, uh, a lot—not pe- necessarily architects, but who in the world out there and gives you inspiration to keep driving you forward doing there's, the big There's a
1: ama- mate. There's so many people doing amazing things now, and um, uh, so I follow on Instagram. I follow uh, all these people just to try to keep up with them on the architecture side. Um, God, I don't know if I should just single out names or I'll forget. Somebody. Well, I'll tell you, e- even if it's one of many, people listening might be interested to go and check them out. So I'm I'm fascinated with what Blark Ingalls is doing. I'm fascinated with what Calatrava is doing. I'm even fascinated with what Frank Gehry is doing, even though I fundamentally disagree with his approach. And told him that at a uh, AIA thing in L.A. once, and he didn't. He handled it very well. But it's. I think the thing is I like to go to buildings and look at them and and feel something. And I like to go to buildings and learn. And I'm seeing people now that are building things that I thought were unbuildable. I'm seeing people put together assemblies of things and I'm like, God, how do they do that? You know, I'm also uh, obsessed with prefabricated building materials, um, 3d printing, contour crafting, CNC milling. And I've been, I've been deploying those in some way in small scale, large scale, as much as I can. Um, but because most of my work is consulting to other people about their buildings, I, I almost feel like that part of my personality, artist as architect, is, is almost on hold, and I just do that as a hobby.
0: Or being transmuted through others. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So before we get too far into the interview, maybe you could provide listeners with a working definition of what constitutes living architecture, because you're, you're <laughs> sort of the, 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 the key embodiment
1: of that, that idea right
0: now in the world.
1: It's funny because the, the 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 more you think about it the the and over the years the the simpler my definition has become. You know, it used to it used to take me probably 5 minutes to explain it and now I can explain it in a line. Living architecture quite simply is where the building takes responsibility for itself and its impact on the planet. That's the that's the simplest way I can explain it that doesn't hem you in. And responsibility is a, a great word because it it implies that the developer or the client has a responsibility, the contractor has a responsibility, the architects, the engineers, we have responsibility. And just because it's not talked about or typical doesn't mean that that responsibility, that ethical responsibility doesn't matter. One of my old mentors was a man named Malcolm Wells, who was, he was the father of underground building. And he is, uh, by the way, buy all of his books if you can. He passed away a few years ago, but he had, the the books were gorgeous. but Malcolm, uh, Matt, Mac is what we all called him. Mac had this idea that if we were to scrape the site and put a building down, that we had a duty to restore the nature that we destroyed and put yeah. it on top. So that's how he came up with this idea of underground building. Um, you know, basically green green roofs for everybody. So living architecture,
0: although it may have living things in and on it, in in itself isn't about the architecture living necessarily. It's about it being part of a bigger system. Although you do talk about how architecture could be alive and biological in nature too.
1: Yeah, I, I had an experience um, over, the, over these last two years that really changed how I think about creativity and problem solving because of the XPRIZE Foundation. And so they, they essentially hired me to develop an XPRIZE for healthy buildings. It's, it was a beautiful question. They said, okay, we're gonna, give you, we're gonna give you some money and some research staff, and you're gonna tell us what buildings need to be. In order to be truly healthy, and we're not going to tell you what it is. You can do whatever you want. Just you, I, and they, and they led me through this process through what's called Singularity University, and it, and it lets you look at problems and solutions in a very different way. That totally changed me. Changed my it rewired my brain. How, how so? Like what? What were the key things that changed you? Like before and after, Eric. It, Eric, sorry,
0: or Eric Corey Freed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Eric's fine. Um, one of the things that we discussed at length was the idea of bias. And how all of us as artists and architects and problem solvers and scientists too, we, we come to everything with a certain bias, whether it's a preference for ways uh, something looks or, or the way something should look or should be. And we bring those biases to us with our solutions. And so we had to, we had to almost go through a, uh, a breakdown of our internal biases and mapping of our biases to make sure that we weren't coming to this with any preconceived notions. And I had a lot of them and And still do, or at but, least know what they are. yeah. and and I you know, and I think the the hardest part for any artist would be to be honest with yourself about it. But just that alone, going through the process of looking at biases was um, was was fascinating. And then the next part was, if you're going to invent a solution to a problem, you need to understand the problem. And so we analyzed the problem um more so than I've ever looked at a problem before, and in very unusual ways, in terms of the stakeholders, the beneficiaries. And then there are embedded problems where there are a lot of people that like the way they work. Affordable housing, right. for example, is a good example of an embedded problem. Affordable housing developers make money doing it, so they like the way it works. But there's a whole mess of people that hate the way current affordable housing looks and functions and, and finances. So there are problems like that that you need to look at in, in a new way. And then when you come to the solution, how can you take a solution and instead of, instead of it solving the problem for one person, how could you digitize it, democratize it, and essentially make it um exponential. So instead of solving, you know, one house for one person, you could essentially find a way to provide housing to a hundred thousand people. And so we go through right. that whole process of how can you do that. And so what what I ended up with after you know after a year was we came up with this idea that we could grow buildings. We could literally Manipulate DNA and grow buildings, and all DNA really is is a bunch of a bunch of code for right. protein code. Yeah, four-letter protein code that that biologists are already sharing with each other, like MP3 files. And so you could essentially share growable designs in that way, and not only would that transform building, which would be amazing, but it would also help the biologists too. So. You know, I, they're biologists right now trying to grow a liver.
0: Right, Yep. Taking and, stem cells and then culturing the right way to grow livers. liver. Cells. Exactly, yep.
1: which will be great. It'll cure disease and do um, yep. wonderful things. Well, they're having trouble. And so when I talked to these biologists at Stanford, MIT, and Harvard, um, I said, what, what's, what's your hold holdup? And I'm not a biologist. I'm an idiot. You're a biologist. I'm not. Uh, but I tried to keep up. Uh, and they said, well, we have trouble growing things big. They can grow a tiny liver, you know, like the size of a quarter, but they can't, they can't grow anything large. And so they're having essentially what they call scaffolding problems. A scaffold is a kind of a a loose structure that they grow biological tissue over. And so instantly we realized that, that if we could start growing buildings, we're essentially growing cheap, deployable, organic scaffolds that are self-replicating. And if we can do that, it'll solve their, the liver people problems, uh, you know, uh, at the same time. And- and that's what got me very excited about it. So what do you think
0: the trajectory of that is in terms of time between now and
1: realizing that?
0: Like Any any sense what that looks like right now?
1: No, but after the TED Talk came out, I got emails from people all over the country that were saying, you know, uh, I was just diagnosed with liver, liver cancer. When oh. can I get a new liver? Oh, and dear. Like, oh, crap. Um, the timeline... The timeline is interesting. It could be as short as five years, it could be as much as twenty. The other part of if we're starting to grow buildings using this new type of synthetic biology, you know, manipulating DNA to to grow even a table or a wall, it would start to get the general public accustomed to that technology. And so the ick factor diminishes. If I if I tell you I'm gonna grow a liver and put it in your chest, you might be freaked out by it. But if you spend a few years living with a table that grew. Like, you know how we grew that table? We're going to do that for your liver. Maybe, you know, the the ick factor goes away. So what I've discovered is a lot of human progress is not dependent on our technical ability, but our ability to stomach and accept these differences. Mm -hmm. So you and I are both passionate
0: about uh, making a difference in the challenges we face with respect to climate change, environmental harm, and those kind of solutions are running on a track that may be slower than some of the challenges we face. So what do you see that we should be doing in the interim to address those challenges? If not living, like the living thing, the table may take five years to get. We've got huge problems that are here today. Like is there an intermediate step of solutions that you would be thinking are important as well?
1: Yeah. I, I Something changed inside me in the last five years where I've run out of patience I think also doing it for so long, you know, 25 years of, of, I want everybody to agree. And I, you know, I I want them all to feel good about their decision to have a green building and blah, blah, blah. I'm over that. I'm way done with that. I'm basically, I don't give a crap. I'm going to force you to do this now. Every building needs to be net zero energy building. Every building needs to grow a portion of its own food or something. Every building needs to, needs to process water in a new way. Every building needs to only use healthy materials. And doing those things is hard as you, as you know, Um, but it's not impossible. It's doable. And that's, that's what initially drew me to living building challenge was here was an organization that was saying, here's where the bar needs to be. And that bar doesn't change. Every building needs to generate its own energy, process its own waste, clean its own water, avoid all known cancer causing chemicals. That's the bar. It wasn't lead as much as I like lead. It wasn't trying to be, you know, let's make everybody happy and let's, let's do it incrementally. So you feel good about it. Let's make it less bad. Yeah, Yeah, the less uh, bad approach, as opposed to no,
0: it's got to be okay. Yeah, and the
1: first the first slide of every first do no harm. Yeah, the first slide of every living living future um, slide deck is is the chart of what we don't want to be less bad. We want to be good. So that's what drew me to that, and also the idea of having a a greater impact in a shorter period of time. You know, I'm an old white guy now, so I, you know, I'm like a dinosaur. (laughs) My extinction is inevitable. (laughs) So how how can I have as much impact as possible? Um, in the shortest amount of time. And and so making people be less bad is not the way to do it. And what about wood? Where does wood fit in? Because
0: I, I recall, and I think it was the first TED Talk you did, um, or maybe both of them, you showed a wood frame house from the 1800s and then <laughs> one from contemporary. And you said, they're, they're both the same. But at the same time, I thought, yeah, but they're both made of wood. And if it were sustainably harvested wouldn't that actually, you know, entrain carbon, lock it up and improve the ecosystem
1: of the forest? Like that's actually sort of a living building concept, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing how, how people react to those, those pictures because I'll show a building from, you know, I think 1816, and then I show one from 2016. Yeah, 200 20 years th- ago. And there, it's the exact same technology. We're building out of little sticks of wood and, and certainly balloon framing and platform framing date back that long. And it benefits because it's a it's a very ubiquitous technology. Everybody on the job site knows how to frame a, a wall that way. I mean, even an Amish person knows how to frame a wall, <laughs> and they don't even have TV. So it that's that's part of what it's got going for it is the ubiquity. But it's also locking us into this old technology. Can so you it's think not of, the
0: wood that's the issue. It's no. the
1: technique of using that wood. No, it might as, yeah. it could be just as easily be metal studs, or it could be made of rice cake studs. I don't. It doesn't matter to me. The The idea of doing balloon framing or platform framing, you know, think where else in your life are you regularly using a 200-year-old technology? In, you know, you're, did you ride your horse and buggy to work today? I no, know. but so much of architecture is like old technology. Exactly. Right That's nuts to me. And so I, I want to change that. You know, I, I built a lot of buildings where we did wood framing but instead of, uh, you know, I, I know you're Canadian, but uh, I'm going to use inches um, instead of <laughs> That's 16. Okay. We, we had inches. We're bilingual. We, used to we could inches. do inches. We understand it. But instead of 16 inches on center, we do 24 inches on center. Yeah. And so I'm stripping out um, already a third of the wood out yeah. of the building. And then I can use that savings to essentially buy sustainably harvested wood or FSC certified yeah. wood. So I, you know, I did a lot, I did a lot of those budget juggling tricks You know, I think what we need is we need a solution that's scalable. And so what excites me is something like the cross-laminated timber, tall timber wave that you're seeing. We're seeing it along the West Coast. I don't know about here in Toronto, but. Yes, mass timber here. But the mass thing. timber to me is exciting. It's a renewable resource. We can grow more of it. We're not importing it from anywhere. It meshes nicely
0: with the zero carbon.
1: Absolutely. And you right? can,
0: and you tie up carbon and uh, sequester more carbon. Yeah, yeah, so
1: you know, much better than steel in terms of embodied energy, much better in sequestering and and the the other thing is when you're done with that building, you could conceivably take it apart and reuse it somewhere right. else. Yeah. I I love the idea of it. Well, what do you think Architects in general should be
0: doing over the next ten years to have the most positive impact in reducing harm and adapting to climate
1: change. They need to go to a store and buy what's called a backbone, and start and install it <laughs> somewhere in their spinal region. <laughs> I, you know, architects are maybe because okay, I'm ar- say, say they get the backbone and they get a they, they get a good version that works
0: and doesn't hurt too much. What 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 kind of things should they be
1: doing? They need to be pushing the conversation. Yeah. We've relinquished way too much authority and responsibility and duty to contractors because of liability. And because of that, we've been, we've essentially limited ourselves from any sort of meaningful conversation. So the irony is at a time when we need architects and that level of problem solving more than ever, we're, we've made ourselves almost irrelevant to the conversation um, for the mo- you know, most buildings are not designed by architects now. And that's, that's, I, I, you know, a problem <laughs> that's evident, I think in, especially in the cities in the US, it's a real issue. So I, I think what we need to do is is we need to be pushing more. Um, and it's not like I'm unwilling to do this. Every client I meet, it's, you know, they're not coming in saying, please give me a net zero energy building. They're saying something stupid, like, oh, well, I'd like an office, please. And then I go, great, we're going to make it net zero and it's going to save you money. And here's how. So I, I'm the one pushing them. It's It's not that I'm so lucky. I mean, I do have nice clients, but it's not that I'm so lucky that these clients are are demanding this stuff? They're, they they mostly just want their office or their or their hotel or whatever it is they're after. So it really school. does come down to guts. Yeah, and I, I you know I can't tell you how many architects I meet all over the all over North America because I lecture all over you know and they they go, you know we're just you know, we're ready as soon as a client comes in and asks for these things we're totally ready we we have you know we got two twenty three year olds on staff that got <laughs> their lead <elite laughs> AP. Can
0: do it. We don't know what it is, but they can do yeah, it. Yeah,
1: they they'll, they'll just do oh, it. God, it's like no, it's it, it's you know you got to you got to get samples and have it in your library and have it everywhere you got to talk about it openly with the client and and you really have to grow yourself a little bit of a backbone and take a leadership position here and um i think if we can do that we could find our relevance again
0: uh, what about um what's missing what's missing from the discussion of climate change in our field and in, uh, amongst our clients, like are there any questions that we should be asking
1: that we're not? E- well yeah um, the main the main one is really about financing or how we're paying for this stuff. Most of the emphasis tends to be on upfront cost or construction cost. And you know even something like solar panels, we, we might be calculating the payback, and that's helping the client make their decision. But at the end of the day, they still need to produce a certain amount of money to get in the building. Right. But it's that it's that viewpoint of scarcity of, I only have this much, I have X amount of money to spend, and that's all I can spend on the project, I can't spend a penny more. And they're coming from a, an approach of scarcity when they do have a lot of things that are in abundance that they're ignoring. So changing the financing is important. But, w- you know, as architects, we don't finance buildings like we... We point to bankers and lenders, and they they do that. So I'd like to see
0: a, a more coherent understanding of, of the finance of both long term and short term.
1: Yeah, I mean, what and also what financial sense does it make, you know, to build a building cheaply that's going to cost you a ton to operate? Right. Yeah. And so there have been things like energy efficient mortgages and other little financial tools like that, but they tend to be all small scale. I'd love to see large scale financing opportunities where you're. by making an investment in a building that doesn't cost a lot to operate or improves the quality of life of the occupants, that there's a payback. And most of those things are externalized. But imagine if, you know, we're in a green office right now. Imagine if your health insurance for your employees was discounted because you used healthy finishes. That'd be an easy thing to do. And a
0: a motivator. And it wouldn't have to be uh, stipulated by the government.
1: Right. And the health insurance company likes it and, and uh, the materials manufacturers suddenly like it. And then the architects like it and, the occupants certainly like it. You know, we, we need new financial tools like that. That's what's needed. Everything else, you know, I can find you a countertop that's made of uh, recycled dungarees and, and you know, <laughs> doesn't off-gas. That's, you know, that's, that's not the easy part.
0: Uh, so, Eric, what do you think we need to do more than anything else to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? That is, how can we best reduce harm, adapt to climate change, and repair and regenerate the damage we've already done? Is there any, like, Pareto... Twenty eighty relationships, like what, what,
1: you know, we, we only have so much time, so much resource, what should we do if we're going to focus? So all the, you know, all the scientists that I talk to, the real climate scientists, they all agree that we, we we're trying to, we're trying to land between one and a half and two degrees centigrade in right. terms of cl- global, you know, uh, temperature change. If we stay where we are, we're going to go all the way to four. And when I say these things to general audiences, their eyes glaze over. They don't know what the they're talking about. Yeah. But So I I have a great analogy for how I explain it to audiences. I go, look, I know you don't understand one degree, one and a half, two degrees centigrade, whatever. I don't either. Here's what it's like. We're totally screwed no matter what. Our world has changed already. It's changing and will continue to change. It's like how severe. It's a little more bearable at one and a half than a two. And to get to one and a half means that we still have to take pretty drastic steps. It's all bad news. But if we can understand that, I think the better off we'll be. And what kind of things do we
0: have to do? The, the the
1: biggest moves we could make that would have the most impact? Uh, well, there's a lot of them. We need to monetize carbon. That would be the biggest move of all. And everybody's been talking about that forever, but
0: not really doing it. What's actually happening right now in California, Ontario, Quebec. And China. And, 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 and China. Although that's a closed economy, so they can do anything they want. But but here, it's had huge impacts. Like, my clients in, in higher education, universities, and colleges have never before now cared that much about whether or not I could do a zero-carbon building for them. They said, well, if you can do it and it doesn't impact the budget, sure, <laughs> that sounds great, well, bonus. But now it's like, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to pay X number of thousands of dollars in this cap and trade uh, will tell us exactly how we're going to do that, please. So it's, it's certainly changed the the landscape significantly.
1: California also has, uh, they've, they have a host of, of almost um, chess like maneuvers that they set up over the last decade. They have one called Senate bill 375, which essentially incentivizes developers to, to place housing in walkable areas. So you wouldn't have to get in a car at all. You could essentially just walk outside and work or shop or, do whatever you need to do. So, you know, we really have to rethink all of our carbon assumptions. And the the trouble is that it all involves change. And, and most people are fearful of change, even when the change would be uh, a better quality of life.
0: By the way, I think the fear of change is one of the reasons a lot of architects now um, don't have that backbone. It's not that they don't have a backbone. They're just afraid of learning what's required in order to be able to do it, right? It's new. Like,
1: hmm, that's not what we've done for the last 20 years.
0: How yeah. do we do this?
1: Yeah, but, you know. The, and, and looking stupid in front of their clients. Not but, being you know, a lot of them know it already. They just for, they've forgotten it, if anything. Remember, remember all those great passive houses in the 70s that were. Yeah, but you and I were looking
0: at that stuff and our classmates were looking at whether or not it was like, you know, proportioned or the right. theory was right, whatever. Um, so what do you think is the best way to drive large-scale change and large-scale action? the kind needed to move us in the right direction in solving climate change. I know you're not a a politician, you're an architect, but you, you do, uh, part of your shtick is to try and motivate people to do the right thing.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, Well, I think I, I start to sound like a bit of a socialist then if you, if you're asking what we should do. That's okay in Canada. We can't, (laughs) yeah, it's fine here. We can't, um, we can't wait for people to want to do it. We can't, we can't, hope that we educate them enough that they volunteer to do it. We, we have to, in, in a certain sense, force them to do it for the greater good. Last year, we, we, uh, in the U S we had three hurricanes within a three week period that were record breaking one record breaking for wind speed, one for land speed and one for water. And they, the people, the poor people in Puerto Rico are still suffering months later. And we just entered hurricane season again. So what happens when this is occurring every year? eventually the, the costs are going to be so unbearable in dealing with these climate catastrophes that, um, that we won't be able to afford to do business as usual anyway. So a, a certain part of me is thinking the capitalism is going to solve this itself. The U. the United States, I don't know about Canada cause um, you know, nobody cares about Canada, but uh, that's a joke. That's <laughs> certainly, a joke. that's a certainly joke. Certainly not
0: the current administration, <laughs> no.
1: but the U S the U S spent $306 billion last year dealing with climate related disasters. That is a lot of money, and uh, frankly, money that we can't afford. And so eventually the cost of dealing with the aftermath is going to get so unbearable that we're going to have to take a much more proactive approach. And so um, I think I'm just waiting for that.
0: Vested interest will start to scream. Absolutely. Yeah. We face some pretty serious climate change challenges over the next 25 years. What scares you the most about the climate change challenges we now face? Food.
1: I think f- food is food is something I realized I don't know enough about. I've been learning, but as an architect I can't really affect food that much in terms of how it's how it's done on a scale. But the numbers are really upsetting in terms of how we grow it, how we ship it, how we transport it, how we dispose of it. And um you know, I think if I were a young person looking at where I could have my the most impact in sustainability, I would probably focus on food rather than buildings right now. Um, because we certainly need it. We have a history of having a resource problem in the industrialized nations. Yeah. People are going yeah. hungry when we're fatter and fatter. So it's it's really about resource manipulation. Um, but climate change and is- And equitable a, distribution. Yeah, climate change is just going to exacerbate all of food production. In California, that's a big economic driver for them. And so they've- They're they've, running out of water. They've understood and that. And it's They're getting hotter. water. Yeah. It's it's very labor-intensive, it's very water-intensive, it's very chemical-intensive, and it doesn't need to be. And so I've been just fascinated with this idea of of what we could do in terms of addressing growing food for lots of people in a short period of time.
0: Are you optimistic that we um, have any chance of meeting the, the needs of
1: people's food requirements or food supply going forward? I'm optimistic because if not, I'd be at home you know, rocking in the fetal position. So I'm, I'm optimistic just to get through the day, but I'm also very much a realist and one who studies history. And I know for a fact that things are going to have to get a lot worse yeah. before it drives us to take action and do something about it. So, you know, Winston Churchill has a great quote and it, he says, um, I, I always count on Americans to do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted every other possible option. <laughs> and I think that's true. So I, I things are going to get worse we're going to try a lot of stupid stuff and waste a lot of time and money and then eventually we'll come around and go oh i guess i guess we'll just do what the hippies have been telling us to do for decades what gives you hope when things are looking really dark what gives me hope is that um is that evolution in thinking is not a slow gradual pace evolution is in fits and starts you know think about think about some of our social issues like gay marriage, how it seemed at its darkest days, it'll never be allowed or never be accepted. And I think within eight years in the U.S., suddenly it's kind of the law of the land. And so I started tracking these kind of movements in in social history, racial segregation. um, What was the one with alcohol? Prohibition. Prohibition. (laughs) Smoking. And so it's amazing how suddenly it'll almost switch to... Oh, I hate this, I hate this. Eh, it's okay. And just deal with it. And so a lot of it is waiting for people just to accept something that you can already see as is, is logical. And and so that gives me hope, but also makes me realize that, you know, at this point in our in our human history, talking about carbon, talking about fossil fuels, talking about climate change is is ugh it's boring, it's depressing, blah, blah, blah. But eventually it'll just be part of the conversation the same way we talk about interest rates or ROI or, you know, or project schedules. It'll just be something built into our process. And, and I, I see it happening with
0: our younger staff at Dialog. Um, anyone between the ages of about 20 and 30, it's just part of the conversation. It's an expectation that we're going to have to figure out how to do this.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's all been dumped on them. So yeah. So they, yeah. Well, they've got,
0: they've got to pick up the pieces after the boomers left them the world. Exactly. Um, so changing gears a bit, I have a few favorite questions I like to ask all my guests at the end of the interview. So first question, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people?
1: Oh, gosh. So there's a, there's a set of books that I buy stacks of and I hand them out. <laughs> um, and so I'll, I'll tell you all of them. One is one is a book called uh, Dark Age Ahead by Jane Jacobs. Yes. yeah, It's amazing how she wrote it, because she wrote it almost like a play. It's done in this narrative, but they're talking about very technical economic issues around climate change. So it's just a great book in that regard, and an easy read.
0: And she's so readable,
1: too. Yeah, she, she's exactly. She has an amazing ability to make complex things simple, to understand. I used to hand out um, Natural Capitalism to people by Paul Hawken, yes. and then Hawken is so smart that he he came out with a better book called project drawdown yes
0: yeah
1: which is so that's a crap intelligently researched so that one's just been interesting it's it's not a it's not a fun happy book but it's an interesting book um i i still i still um tell people to read cradle to cradle by mcdonough yeah um just because it's I've seen the effect it has on people when they read it. It makes them look at the world in, in a new way. It's paradigm shifting.
0: Yeah. Every, every single new person at dialogue gets one when they sign on. Oh, that. there you go. Yeah.
1: yeah, Fantastic. Uh, what are the ones? And, and then the last, the last book that I give to everybody, um, I give it to my students too, is, uh, it's a children's book and it's called Harold and the purple crayon. What's that about? It's a tiny little children's <laughs> book that you read when you were five. I don't it's remember a, reading that. It's one. about a it's about a kid in his pajamas who his mom gives him a purple crayon and he fantasizes whole beautiful new worlds to play in. And so it's it's kind of the reason why we do this is that we're we're creative problem solvers, we're world builders, and and it's it's a, the book is a nice easy reminder to, to never to never let that fun part of it escape you.
0: And second question. What key things would you teach a grade nine class to help them better understand how to create a more sustainable, regenerative world?
1: Uh, Well, I've done this. Um, I I realize that with ninth graders, because they're a mess of hormones and zits and weird facial hair that I, you can't really, you're not going to teach them technical, regenerative, resilient stuff. So what I do is I walk them through a life cycle assessment. And so I just point to stuff in the classroom. I go, what's this table made out of? And some kid will go, wood. And I'll go, right, wood. Where does wood come from? And some smart ass will go, oh, Lowe's or you know Home Depot. <laughs> go, yeah, but where did they get it from? Trees. Yeah, trees. And you know, and so I walk them through this kind of very participatory thing of life cycle. and And we'll do wood, we'll do glass, we'll do metal. And then they start to not know the answers to these things, which is telling. And the implication being that you should know the answers to these things. And then I say, what's this carpet made of? And they go, well, we don't know. I said, what if I told you the carpet was made of thousands of chemicals? And most of those chemicals are cancer-causing. How would you feel about it? Everyone lifts their feet off the ground at that point. So we go through this. I just, I'm trying to teach them how to fish. I'm trying to kind of give them the tools of asking the questions. Where does this come from? What were the byproducts of, of making this? What are you going to do with it when you're done with it? How healthy is it? Can we use it again? You know, just giving them that information more than anything. Because they'll walk away and they'll remember that. And because it's a fun exercise that we do, it's, it's surprisingly effective.
0: Yeah. And as you said, very memorable. Okay, third question. If you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times of anything you wanted, written or graphic or combination, what would you do with
1: it? Hmm. That's... Well, right now I'm uh, preoccupied with Trump. But putting it in the New York Times isn't (laughs) going to change anything. (laughs) It it will get lost. (laughs) Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, You know, the biggest tragedy of this whole Trump thing, regardless of your politics, is that it has completely hijacked our entire national conversation away from anything else. Yeah. And so even when real issues do come up, such as Puerto Rico, there's no oxygen in the room to talk about them. And climate change is certainly didn't even make it into the presidential debates with Trump and Hillary and certainly hasn't been discussed since. Even when he pulled out of Paris, the implications of that weren't discussed as much as, what a jerk, he doesn't, right. you know. And so that's, that's the trouble. So if anything, I'd almost, I'd almost like to find a way to, to, you know, turn people's chin to look at something much bigger than Trump. But, you know, it, it would also have to be very actionable. You know, direct them to a website or direct them something where they could commit to something that they would tangibly do. So that's that's a tough one. It also wouldn't be enough. I mean, we're. <laughs> I almost feel like my country is fundamentally broken, and um, we need we're going to need a whole bunch of therapy after whatever this period is in order to to move forward.
0: So maybe half the pages, the books that we just talked about, the next half is a good set of therapists.
1: Yeah, or a group hug.
0: <laughs> group hug. Uh, And to wrap up, what advice would you offer our listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of 21st century imperative?
1: I think this can all seem very overwhelming. I think given the spectrum of problems that we have, energy, water, food, carbon, temperature, drought, ocean acidification, if you're feeling overwhelmed, my advice to you is just start, just start doing something. I, I can't wait for you to feel like you're an expert. I can't wait for you to feel comfortable. I can't wait f- for you to feel like you know enough. We're we're way out of time for that. I need you to just start, knowing that you'll make missteps along the way, knowing that you'll form new opinions and, and evolve along the way. That's fine. That's the way it works. But just start. And so, pick if it if it helps, just pick one issue that really bothers you, whatever it is, and. Find a way to talk about that issue in a way that'll make people remember it. I use humor for that, right? It's, that's because that's what I know. But for other people, it's, it's you know, look at a, an, there's an organization called Charity Water that does this really well with water. They, they're able to talk about water in a way that's memorable. So find something, find a way to make it memorable, find a way to, to make it actionable, and find a way to direct people's anger and frustration into something good that they can do to change it, and then advocate like hell for that thing. And so... If it's refugees' rights, then focus on that and just become the refugee person. If it's on clean water, then just become the clean water person. If it's on, you know, using fly ash and concrete, if that's the thing that really bothers you, then just become the fly ash person. That's what we need. We need people to stand up and become leaders in this, not experts, but, but true leaders, getting people to change the way we do things.
0: You don't have to do everything. Pick something and become a leader. Exactly. I think that's a great place to end off. Thanks very much. Really appreciate your time. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers.
0: You can find links to more information about Eric Corey Freed and to notes about what we discussed in this podcast at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like this podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thanks for listening.